0: This is Rob Tober for Boxing Social in association with Betfred. Delighted, as always, to be joined once again by Mr. Frank Warren for part two of our, I guess you could probably call it, boxing, not boxing life stories, sorry Tris Dixon. Um, this is your life in boxing, I think we'll call it. What do you reckon? Call it what you like. <laughs> Whatever you want to call it, mate. <laughs> Obviously the first part of this interview was done in Las Vegas. Um, Went down very well, you'll be pleased to hear. Um, so we're bringing you part two. Uh, Going to try and pick it up from where we left off. We were in the middle towards the end of the whole kind of Nasim Hamed affair, yeah. should we call it. Um, we went through kind of, let's say, the good times and we touched briefly upon some of the bad times. Um, we won't dally on it because there's plenty to talk about. But the Kevin Kelly fight. Obviously, it's a fight that's always referred back to. Pretty much every time a Brit now goes to America, people talk about the Kevin Kelly Nasim Hamid fight. Just how exciting was it to be a part of? Not just the fight itself, which is obviously a brilliant fight, but the whole build-up and bringing Nas to New York.
1: Well, we worked very hard. I mean, we we built Nas into a big star over in the UK, and we got we did a deal when Ke- uh, Don King and I parted ways. We did a deal with um, with uh, HBO, who were then quite heavy in boxing, probably. You know, it was them and Showtime, one of the two big channels in the States. And uh, they asked us to bring him over, and we thought it was the right time. And they went to New York, and we found a New York fighter in Kevin Kelly. Who had had quite a good record and was a good fighter. So for Naz to make his debut there. Um, problem was, I think it was, it was very, it was about a week before Christmas, if that. Um, everybody was saying we were mad to go to Madison Square Gardens. Uh, no one had, uh, you know, promoted shows that late in the year, you know, near the Christmas time Bob Arum said we wouldn't sell tickets and so forth um, but we did the deal and I did, it, I did the deal with um, uh, back then with uh, now I can't remember his name now you to have to edit this <laughs> his name will come to you in a minute but anyway I've done the deal with, with HBO and uh, at that time Lou DiBella was working with them as well and uh, we done it on the proviso that they guarantee us certain things <coughs> excuse me one was that we would get a lot of advertising out there. Excuse me. <coughs> <coughs> what a bloody flu as well as this. Right. So we did a lot of... ad. Adver- uh, w- they would guarantee us some advertising. They would do some... We'd get some adverts over Lincoln Tunnel, Times Square. Um, but, you know, they plastered it. I mean, they, they really did do a good job at HBO with it. And also that... Um, um, that... Uh, we would get um, some good sort of PAs for him, personal appearances on shows and so forth. He'd done a promo with uh, Chris Rock, who was flying at the time in the States. He was like, the, you know, he's the young uh, comedian. Everyone loved it, uh, where they'd done it. It was a great thing. It was like a rip off of the Psycho film, where, you know, the shower scene, uh, curtains yeah. open, and it was Chris Rock. So it was, it was really, it was fun what they did. And Naz was good at that, you know. And one thing about Naz, he was—he got it. He understood that. And then the uh, next thing we did was uh, got David Lachapelle. He's probably one of the top photographers in the in the world fashion industry and whatever. Very, very creative. And he did the uh, famous photograph with Naz with his his gloves on fire, which was a great shoot. So yeah, they they HBO really got into it. And as a result, we, uh, we you know we was there. We had the press conference. Flew out. Um, Parked ourselves out in New York, and uh, it was uh, it was very you know it was it was really lively. Unfortunately, um, some prior to that, Naz and Brendan had had a fallout, split up, then got I uh, got them back together again. But as a result of that, um, Brendan did a book or made some comments in a book called *The Paddy and the Prince*, which Nick Pitt, respected writer wrote, and uh, that that was published more or less at the same time and. Uh, some of the things that Brendan, the late Brendan, said, didn't go down when, well with Naz and it undone, it, and the atmosphere became quite toxic between everyone. Uh, not with me, I mean with them, and it was you know trying to keep it together. But it was uh, it was a fan, it was a fantastic uh, event. Um, we we had a record sellout for Featherweight's in New York, a show in uh, Madison I, I was I think I was the first British guy to ever promoted a boxing show there. We did. Um, it was a really good card. I mean, the place was, you know, lot, lots and lots of celebrities show up. I Phil remember Phil Bro- um, um, his name? Brosner Piers Brosnan. Brosnan was there. Ringside, lots of stars there. Donald Trump showed up. He came to our after, f- after fight party afterwards. Obviously he wasn't a president back then. <laughs> so everybody was there. I mean, you know, lots of stars were there. Lots of people came over to see it. And it was an exciting fight. You know, Nas went over, got caught, got clipped, went down, The Both of them went down quite a few times during the fight. So the, everybody's on the edge of their seats. And in the end, Naz just
0: broke Kevin's heart and stopped him, and that was it. You mentioned being kind of the first British promoter to, to take a show over to New York, to Madison Square Garden, and promote a show there. What was that like for you on a, on a personal note? I appreciate at the time you're not one to blow your own trumpet, but now <laughs> looking back and kind of seeing what a spectacle it was, must be nice, must be a proud feeling.
1: Well, it was okay. You know, It was, it was good, and I enjoyed that. There was a lot of stuff going on behind the scenes that, You know, that while the show was on. Um, there, the, there were people trying to get into NAS, you know, the usual that happens, and the, uh, the Yanks are, the Americans do that. You know, that's what they are. They do, and there was all sorts of problems. There was a problem. We never got the contract signed and got it back from um, Cedric Cusher, who was the, who that, at that time was the promoter of, um, of Kevin Kelly. And I remember at the press conference, or oh, it there might have been a Wayne on a press conference, Probably the press conference on the Thursday. I said, uh, where's the contract? Oh, we'll do it after. I said, we won't do anything after, we'll do it now. No, uh, well, I said, well, there ain't going to be a press conference. And as we said, let's get on with it. I said, no, no, you do what you've got to do in the ring, I'll do what we've got to do outside the ring. And cut a long story short, we held everyone up, got Kevin over and everybody, and they all signed the agreement that they'd been holding for probably eight weeks. You know, you get all these things sometimes with fights, Oh, I, I had to sign a contract the day of the fight or the day before. Well, you didn't get it the day before. You had it in your possession for eight weeks. The fact that you've drawn it out that long and not come back about it, that's down to you. That's not down to us. So you get that, you get that scenario happens uh, on occasions, and it's all, everybody always says, oh, the poor fighter. You know, he's been taken advantage of. Not at all. You had the contract in your possession, so you should have done something with it. You know, you've got lawyers. You've got advisors. You've got promoters. And in the end, it was signed, so that was that, and we got the fight on.
0: You mentioned kind of, I mean, Pierce Brosnan is just one name of many that you could have picked out around the time that real glory years, really, of British boxing that everybody kind of even now kind of reverts back to yeah. that 90s era when you had the likes of I know people who came to your shows, the Gallagher's, Oasis, etc. Yeah. Ex- explain and describe what that kind of era was like and what was it like having these people come to fights on a regular basis.
1: Well, it's great. I mean, you know, Gordon Ramsay, who became a big friend of mine from. You know, when he, I used to go to restaurants in the early days. He came to all the fights, him and Marcus Waring, who was then working with him. Uh, all those guys came along, he just said, um, you know, yeah. I, I mean, all sorts of people. I remember um, um, from Pulp, um, what's his name? My brain's gone. Come on.
0: Oh, well, uh, it's Monday morning, we'll let you off. You know, well, you can let me off it. Anyway. <laughs> but
1: they're, they're, all the guys showed up, they were all, you know, we used to get them there. And it was nice, it was nice to get a few celebrities there. and and you know a lot of footballers came along you know sort of movie star Helen Mirren she used to come to a few of the shows with her husband Taylor Hackford who was a really you know a great director he, he, he did when we were kings he, he was a really nice guy she was lovely but we had you know, all sorts of people come up come along to the shows
0: how would you compare kind of the modern era of boxing to that 90s era what's the difference what's the same is it better now worse now
1: it was it was more pioneering back then because you know you never you know we were we were we had a contract with uh, originally with, with Showtime and then we, all, all the British filers were getting regular regular exposure in the states. I mean lots of exposure on Showtime. Um, all of our shows were being broadcast back, so all those guys benefit from that. You know all the way from you know from Nas through to you know. Kozaki, Steve Collins, some of the Eubank, Eubanks couple of fights that Eubanks had for us—all of those were broadcast back to the states. So it was, it was brilliant. Frank Bruno, all of them were getting great exposure. So um, it was exciting times, and we were—you know—we were doing some really good quality shows, as we always do. And they were most of the shows were sellouts in—you know—in big stadiums all the time. We was doing it on a regular basis and bringing and developing young fighters and bringing them through all the time. So that was quite exciting, but that's what we're doing now. Same things we're doing now. We've got a great roster now, which I'm really delighted with, and some of the young fathers that are with us now that um, have committed themselves to be with us for the for, for, for the future.
0: You mentioned Don King when we were talking about now. Is he somebody you've had? Um... A few encounters with, should we say, over the years, both good and bad. Talk to me about you first encountering Don King. I mean, I think a lot of our viewers, or a lot of boxing fans in general, maybe obviously haven't dealt with Don, maybe have a, a skewed idea of him as a person. You've dealt with him, you know him fairly well, as well as anybody. Talk to me about your relationship with Don King.
1: Well, my relationship with Don was, uh, you know, I'd met him many, many, in the first time maybe met him was in the 70s, um, You know, when I was a fight fan, going out to see fights, late late 70s. Go out and see a couple of fights out in the States. And uh, and when he came over once, but then I got into obviously into promoting. And uh, once I was in that we did a, you know, we were talking regularly, then we did to start doing some show done a few shows together with him. Uh, back in Birmingham, Pat Caldell for Azuma Nelson. We did a few more and then we did we got together to do the, Barry Hearn at the time had the promotional rights for Chris Eubank and Nigel Ben, but he couldn't get the event, he couldn't raise the money to fight, to get the two fighters together. So Don got involved to bring in Showtime and I did the deal with ITV, I got a really good deal out of them, big money in those days, uh, to get the fight on. And that was our sort of, you know, when we started getting our shows together and that, that, there were some problems behind the scenes which you can read about in my book and documentary that's being filmed at the moment. Free plug. Uh, sorry
0: free plug. <laughs> well, you,
1: you don't pay me for doing this do you? so anyway uh, so um, he was uh you know he was he was in, very engaged was funny i mean had, you know he had this uh, um, obviously a lot of, a lot of uh people were saying a lot of bad things about him but you speak as you find he was a he was an extraordinary good promoter brought put some great fights together he was quite you know, he was quite fearless when it came come to um, putting, you know, putting the money up and get making these shows happen. Um, and he was a he was obviously a great self-promoter as well. Um, but he, 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 you know, he, I enjoyed it. I had some good times with him. But it, you know, it it went, it went it went wrong at the end.
0: You mentioned fearless. That's quite an interesting word. What makes a fearless boxing promoter? Would you consider yourself fearless? Well, I think it's just having
1: self-belief and belief in yourself to, you know, to do, if you have got your eye on the prize, then make sure you, you you deliver and go all the way and do it. And uh, I suppose if you must say it's fearless, I'm quite I'm quite um, determined. And if I want to, if, if I can make it happen, I'll make it happen.
0: You are determined. Um, a phrase that's always banded about in various walks of life. but It's ones that I've heard likened to use more comebacks than Sinatra. Though you know Frank Sinatra. You don't know him now, but you've met Frank along oh, the you way. Know. I promoted Frank Sinatra's shows, I brought him over here.
1: When, I'd, when I owned London Arena and we, I put him on, he did, a, did some shows for me, I know him
0: very well, yeah. What was that like, I mean, Frank Sinatra's like one of the most sort of celebrated figures of the last hundred years, what was that like? I mean, he
1: was a really nice guy, I mean, we, go, we, we went for dinner and we had good times, I went to his shows in the States, he looked after us there. <clears throat> he was an extremely charming man, and uh, didn't suffer fools, didn't like the press, <laughs> And uh, he, he didn't like giving interviews, stopped all that, but he was an extremely charming man and more importantly he was a very talented musician and a great, obviously a great singer and uh, he was fantastic company.
0: How did that come to pass? How did Frank Warren from Islington bump into Frank Sinatra and, and, and well, work he, together? Because I built an
1: arena in London,
0: London Arena, 12,000
1: seat venue t- and we, you know, I had to get events on there and he was one of the events that we brought in there. We put lots, you know, lots of events on in, in London Arena um, and other promoters as well put on there. But um, that was in, uh, in, in the days when, there, when, when it was, you know, when there was a lot of entrepreneurism and then there was a terrible recession where the interest rate, I think, went about 16%. So it was a tough time for every, a lot of people. I think nearly 80% of the business down in Docklands all went bust. But you know, comebacks, I, don't, I haven't been anywhere. I've been doing what I've been doing solidly solidly involved with all the top names in boxing since I've got into the sport. So I don't know what that's all about. I don't know what that's all about. I haven't gone, about, gone away or done anything. All I've continued to do is do what I always do, which is build and develop the best young fighters, the best fighters. And I think certainly up until about, was it probably up until about six, seven years ago, I would say nearly 100% all the fighters, the good fighters that come through with me, well, 99% maybe, uh, after that it's probably been about 80% now it's all the guys we you know we we're, we're back in there you look at all our, our roster of fighters we've got the best you know Tyson's with us um Joe Joyce is with us Daniel Dubois I mean who wouldn't like all those on your books you know as as heavyweights and we've got the best heavyweight in the world and we've got you know uh the the, the two of, two of the two of the best young ones or, or, sorry not young ones two of the best around and certainly in Daniel Dubois I think the best young one around. Um, lots of good fighters. I mean, we did, you know, we, we, when you think with Josh Warrington, what we've done with him, Josh Warrington was with um, Matram and they couldn't do anything with him. They didn't do anything. They didn't do him any justice or service. Came with us and look what's happened with him. So we're good at with this. So it's not about comebacks. It's about doing what you... You've got to have a bit of knowledge also in the sport. And sometimes, you know, you get into positions, you get some luck, you make your own luck, but you get some luck. You get somebody who wants to get involved in the game and they want to throw a lot of money at it like the zone did. The zone have and they've thrown fortunes at it. I mean, they they put money into the sport, which is terrific, but madness, you know, from their perspective. The money they've invested, and what I'm understanding that that, you know what they paid out, they could have done that on a much, much more um, healthier budget. So now they've got to recoup their money. It'd be interesting to see whether they do or they don't. But it's been great for the sport. It's more exposure. We'll see whether they continue and see what moves forward. In the meantime, we're in a great position. We're, we're going to make a huge announcement concerning our future and BT. In Hopefully, um, I hope we're going to do it before Christmas, but it's going to be great news for certainly BT customers, for us and for boxers and for, more importantly for the fans. So we're about to do that. We've got a couple of other bits of good news that we're going to, we're putting, we're, uh, going to uh, be broadcasting soon. So uh it's not a question of comebacks it's a question of just keep doing what you're doing keep working working hard i mean we've got a, a very good team here very good a very good team it's probably the strongest backroom team that um i've had for a long time or i've been working with for a long time you know my my boys are all doing well in it we've got um great pr department um, we've got you know everyone in here is all contributes they all deliver and that's what it's all about for us and we are you know we're constantly striving and working hard to deliver bigger and better shows and next year get our two shows out of the way before christmas and next year we're going to have some really good stuff and we've got tyson going in with deontay wilder in february uh, which is the best heavyweight fight out there you know anthony joshua against ruiz is an intriguing fight but it's not the best it's not the best fight fighting the best the best fighting the best is deontay wilder against tyson fury
0: and that take place in February. We look forward to that, which is something that we'll come on to after we've done this. But it's back about you. You're very selfless yeah. talking about Tyson and everybody else to talk about yourself. You mentioned kind of having your backroom staff and your backroom team. <coughs> A Big part of that is your family. Um, yeah. Your sons work. Well, your sons work with you here. You've also got brothers and cousins and nephews, etc., scattered around the boxing business. What's that like for you, kind of? having it as a family business because obviously it wasn't that when when you were young and it's now you you've created this family business that you've got your sons and the rest of your family working in
1: well i didn't want my sons working in the business at all i made mean, i've said that in various interviews earlier but they're you know obviously they've grown up watching boxing being involved in it i mean they didn't come to shows till they were you know not not you know young kids i mean they're a little bit older before they come to shows but um they just love the sport they're involved in, it, and at the end of the day I, you know they're all they've all got a good education, they all went to university um, and I wanted them to go off and do other things, but that's what they decide want to do, so you've got to support them. So I've, I've, you know I've done that, but they all hold their own they're all very capable uh, capable in doing in doing what they do, and i'm very proud of, proud of all of them in, in, in their endeavors um, and if it's become a family business, that's what it is. I've got a few nephews, that's my, my brother Robert. Um, same thing, you know, we've always, the family's always been boxing mad. You know, we've had a, a cousins who've boxed. We've had, you know, my my uh, my uncle boxed in the army. My dad had a few fights in the army. So they all, you know, they've all, they've all had some,
0: yeah, you know, they've been a bit of a boxing background. So you didn't want them to work in boxing, why not?
1: Because I wanted them to do something else. I did it because I had to do it. Not I had to, but because I didn't know any different. You know, I didn't have the opportunity of a university education. I didn't have the opportunity. I mean, I passed my 11-plus. I went to a grammar school. But I didn't go to school. I left school when I was 14 and a half. I didn't go to school anymore. I just didn't go anymore. I just bunked off and never went. And I regret that because, you know, I I always did well at school. I was always in the top three in the early years when I was interested in school and and did quite well. But... um, I, I you know i want to have you know have a broader horizon for me boxing has been breaks so I've met people that I've never dreamed of meeting. I've met my heroes when I, from when I was a young kid you know I've, i mean I hosted when uh, they they when they brought out a video of um, at London arena many years ago with george foreman uh Joe Frazier and Muhammad Ali i mean we hosted that so the three of them in the room sitting with them were all talking i mean these are these are th- kids' dreams come true, you know, meeting heroes like that. And, uh, and promoted George Foreman. I brought him over and he fought for me over here. So, you know, all that's all has been great. But, uh, you, you know, you always want something. You know, in an ideal world, you, a parent wants your sons or your daughters to do something different. Um, but they, they, they're doing what they want to do. And if they're happy doing what they want to do, then I'm happy.
0: What do you think you would have done if it wasn't being a boxing promoter?
1: Well, I was involved in clubs and pubs when I was a kid.
0: Um,
1: and, I was inv- I, I, and I was quite, in- I sort of nearly did some shows, I nearly promoted. I was quite close to putting Blondie on at Stanford Bridge, Chelsea, many, many years ago. He was working on that in the sort of late, late 70s with a friend, a kid when I grew up, called Barry Kane, who went on to edit a few music magazines and he's written a few books and he, we had the introduction, we went to see them, I, I, you know, I, would have, I would have been involved in something like that, I know I would have been doing that. Um, or nightclubs, that's what, I was, that's what I was involved in.
0: You mentioned you brought George Foreman over, you also brought another American heavyweight over a couple of times, uh, Mike Tyson. Yep. Talk to me about your experience of working with Mike Tyson. We'll start with the first fight, which was obviously in Manchester against Julius Francis. What was that like, in bringing him over for that?
1: It was very interesting, when I brought him over he was, um, how can I put it? He was. Uh, it, it was I th- at the time um, the Lennox Lewis's former promoter, um, Greek guy. I can't think of bloody. I'm terrible now. I can't think of their names. It uh, come to me in a minute. He was in. The, they were trying to bring him over, and Jay Larkin, the late Jay Larkin, who, who ran, who was the uh, vice president of Showtime and ran all their boxing. He called me and told me. So I said, Look, I'll do it. Don't worry about that. Shelly Finkel was involved with Mike Tyson back then, and eventually we got a deal together. and We brought him over, and he came over, and it was—he uh, was good as gold. He was, you know, a lot of people were against him coming here, but he came in. We got, he got him in, and he, there's some opposition which you can read, get more detail about it in my book and in, my, in the documentary that's coming out. And uh, it was quite inter- it was quite interesting, and we—he uh, was okay. He had his moments. He he went on a massive spending spree whilst he was here. He'd he, he'd come out of prison. It was a bit of a thing, really, because by then I'd fallen out with King, and King had been promoted him. And and that you know Jay was incensed with what happened with between King and myself. He weren't very happy about that And he I remember he at the time when we when we made our settlement, where I you know I, we paid King uh, a settlement sum, and he had to then. Uh, took all his interest away from all the British fights because he was partnering them, so we got the contracts back come to a settlement and uh, jay said we'll get that back ten times over, and that 's what exactly happened so I promoted uh, Tyson mike tyson and uh, and the, obviously the other shows we did and at that and at the time I think Don had been, had been the exclusive promoter at Showtime and that all fell away, which pissed him off and with with jay uh, helped to was the other half of the party that um, um, launched Showbox in the States. We launched that and we did shows in the UK. So it was all interesting times with with, uh, Mike Tyson but as I say went on a spending spree, spent some ridiculous amounts of money and left an unpaid bill here.
0: So that was your first time with Mike Tyson? All went swimmingly? Um, second time with Mike Tyson, not as smooth as I'm led to believe.
1: Well, we led the show. We announced a show up in Scotland, put it on sale, sold 38,000 tickets in a couple of days. Then he wasn't coming in. So we had to send all the tickets back, cancel the show, etc, etc. Then about eight days later, then they said, they want to bring him back. And it was a mess. And it, it, I should have actually said, no, we'll postpone it to another time. But they, weren't, they were locked in They. And the fact of the matter, he owed Showtime a, a truckload of money. And they were trying to recoup their money, but we put it on obviously it was difficult for you know for people who were booking tickets to rebook hotels and things a mess <coughs> and we did it at, I think it's Hamden park in Scotland and uh and there's all sorts of problems behind the scenes he had, he'd left the there was still the unpaid um, bill uh, which had to be settled and uh, people issued um, proceedings against him and me what they did, issue against me for I don't know because I wasn't wearing a jury and uh, I certainly wasn't laying out millions for him for jury so anyway it happened there was a couple little bit of problems behind the scenes we had uh, some disagreements but at the end of the day he fought and he paid for the jury.
0: I mentioned you had disagreements now you know what I'm about to ask you there was an awful, awful lot of rumours swirling around that you had yourself a little fracas with the baddest man on the planet can you tell me anything about that? He- Alleged fracas. He he fought and he paid for his jury. Who did he fight you?
1: No, he fought Lou Savarese. It was. He was very. He was uptight on the night, but you'll read all about it in our book and it'll be in
0: our documentary. See, I wasn't aware of this documentary before I came in today. So all of these good questions I've got to ask you. Question:
1: I'm giving you an answer. I'm teased. you're you're you've got an exclusive. There's a documentary.
0: Well, exclusive until Netflix asked for the rights. Um, Anyway, Mike Tyson, what was it like having him over? Because it was, what was it like having Mike Tyson? When he's in
1: a good mood, it's brilliant. When he's in a bad mood, he's a complete, he was a complete prick. Um, What do you want me to say? But he he is a guy that everybody was saying yes to all the time. Yes, yeah, Mike, oh, is that right? Yeah, and he's, if he had a shout up, yeah. You know, if it was pitch black and he said the sun was shining. Yeah, the sun's shining, Mike. That's how they were with him, and uh, unfortunately, that's not my way. And, uh, and that was it.
0: How much do you think he'd be worth in modern money, so to speak? If, he, if Mike Tyson, maybe that Mike Tyson or the Mike Tyson from before he went away, was around today, how big of a star do you think he would be? He'd be huge. He was, you know, at his best, he
1: was probably one of the most exciting young heavyweights that they've ever been. He was a complete wrecking machine, wasn't he? He'd come out, he could box, though. He had great head movement, great jab. He was a student of boxing, um, but he just went totally off the rails. And re- which a lot of talented people. It doesn't just happen in boxing. You've seen it happen with other sports stars. I mean, George Best is a prime example. Alex Hurricane Higgins in snooker. In Gascogne. Paul Gascoigne well, well, Paul Gasco didn't let any people down on the pitch. You know, he never let people down. He had some problems outside. But, you know, George Best was retired when he was 27. I mean, you think about that in, that, in this day and age. And retired, not at the top. You know, playing in a lower league. So that happens sometimes with people. You know, because you've got a God-given talent, it's not just good enough. You also need that discipline. But maybe then by having discipline, you're not the same person. And uh, unfortunately, at the end of the day, he was bought out, you know, with, with Mike Tyson, he was bought out of so many problems that, you know, they didn't get away with anything. Shake his hand now if you've met him. I haven't seen him. I haven't seen. Well, I'm not. I'm not not been anywhere where he's been since. Uh, would I shake his hand? No. Wouldn't want to shake his hand but... I got nothing. You
0: know. I got. I've got he's not a friend of mine. Fight that you'll be unfortunately linked with um, one of the most high-profile fights in British boxing. Certainly, the recent history: Nigel Benn versus Gerald McClellan. Um, infamous in, in in both positive and negative lights. Obviously, that night. Talk to me about that night strange even, even to look back now, considering all of the changes that, that happened. I mean, talk to me first about the kind of the promotion and, and the build-up to that fight.
1: Well, the build-up was, you know, Nigel, Nigel at that time had a guy looking after him called Peter De Freitas. So you, because you, what you do in this business, you, you know, I don't go and talk straight to the fight, you, and these sometimes are the problems. The person you speak to, the manager or whoever their agent is, is, you discuss something, and it's the why they deliver the message. And, Peter De Freitas, you know, Nigel, we made the fight. It was all, The fight was ordered. He was a lower weight, if you may recall, uh, Gerald McClellan. He came up a weight. He was with Don King, mm. and he became the mandatory for Nigel. So it's a fight that had to take place, or Nigel had to vac- vacate. And Nigel was under the impression that everybody was trying to get him beat, including me, which was ridiculous. What do I, you know, what's the point? What's, what's good for me and Gerald McClellan beating Nigel Ben? I mean, he goes back to America. I mean, there's nothing in it for me if you want to look at it financially, so that's a pretty ridiculous position, but we had a situation where um, it was it was quite uncooperative with the, the PR, we sold out but we still wanted, you still want to get the viewers, it was on ITV show back on Showtime, you still want the publicity, because you want to deliver big numbers the bigger the numbers are, the better it is for the boxer, because next time you say right this is what the audience was, we want more money, more money goes to the boxer it's great for everyone um, and press conference, we had, a, we had a little bit of a fallout and Nigel and I had words, which you can read about in my autobiography and you can see in my documentary.
0: I didn't know you had a documentary
1: coming out, Frank. I thought I might mention it <laughs> as an aside. And then, uh, anyway, the fight, took, the, the fight took place, but it was, a, it was, it was a, an electric moment. It was at London Arena, a place that I, I was instrumental in, uh, well, built, you know, building, (coughs) he, McClellan was was a big puncher and he came in um, and he got rid of, he got rid of his trainer Emmanuel Stewart and his manager before the fight Um, and he brought these two guys in or no one ever heard of I've never seen them before in boxing like one guy's wearing a sailor's hat and another fella whoever they were and that was his corner and his trainers. And he uh, came out in the first round and uh, he had Nigel down a couple of times. And uh, fortunately, Nigel got through the first round. But we all thought he was going to be over because he, he was a tremendous puncher. And then the second round was quite torrid as well for Nigel. And, and as it went on, then Nigel started getting back into the fight. And it was exciting. I remember the late Hugh McIlvaney. I can remember watching him. This is how exciting it was. He was standing on his seat. All the press sections that were, they were like someone holding their phones, you know, sending a report back for the Sunday papers, it, but cheering him. That's it was the most electric fight, brutal fight, and turned out to be a tragic fight. And eventually Nigel came through. And in that corner, you kept seeing uh, Gerald kept blinking, blinking a lot. And I, 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 honestly do believe if Emmanuel Stewart had been in the corner, there might be another outcome. He may have picked up on what that was. I mean, it's a benefit of hindsight from my point of view, you know. And uh, anyway, he got taken to the hospital and uh, he he was then put in a a drug induced coma because he had an operation on his brain to relieve the swelling because he had a bleeding on the brain. And uh, that was the start of a, a pretty torrid and horrible time for him and his family. And it was. It was quite awful, and there was a lot of things being said. A lot of people, a lot of comments, which I remember at the time, a comment was made about Don King, which um, was untrue. I was there the whole time. Every time anybody went to the hospital, if King went to the hospital, I was there. I heard everything. There's all these things about Don standing at the foot of his bed and, um, you know, calling him a quitter and all that. Well, no one stood at the foot of his bed. He was in intensive care. No one was allowed in there. It was just bullshit. But it made great copy if you want to call it great copy, you know. These days they call it fake news, whatever you want to call it. So there was a lot of things going on like that and it was, it was very, it was sad and tragic. And his family, we, we brought his family over, we flew them all over, try and do his best to accommodate them and look after them. But um, obviously they wanted to get their, 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 their son and brother home. And uh, eventually he traveled back and, and, he, uh, and, he, had, and he obviously had, had quite a few problems. There was a big thing about the money um, about you know what he got after the fight, he had some advances. One of the things that happened was that um, Emmanuel Stewart, who's great trainer, whatever, but Emmanuel took all his money—the money that it was, was legitimately due to him, management money, etc.—but he took it from the purse. That that came off the purse. So when it comes to settling the purse, you know that's nothing to do with King or anybody. That came from Emmanuel decided he was going to take his money. Would you take your money off a guy who's in a coma or who's you know, would you take that? I don't think I would, but that's what happened. So that was one of the things that happened. And it was all it became it was pretty awful and it and, and I questioned the sport at the time and the my involvement in it. And I remember talking to Adrian Watson, Dr. Adrian Whiteson, who was the uh, chief medical officer of the Boxing Board of Control. And he said, Look, you know, tragedies happen in all walks of life, and we know that boxing is a sport where, you know, if you are punching somebody, you're gonna hurt them, or you could hurt them. And he, uh, he said, all we can ever do is to try and make it safer and learn from it. And uh, some, out of that bad, some good did happen. Thankfully on the night, what we, one thing we did do, normally the board have a, uh, they, they, they tell you how many, you know, what, you, what your medical requirements are on the night. So you have you know, an ambulance, etc. We had two ambulances there. We, had, we doubled everything. Not for any reason. Luckily we did. That's what we did that night. Two of everything, which I believe, you know, could have, in some ways, helped Gerald. Could it could have been much worse than it was, and it was bad as it is, but it it could have been much worse.
0: And something that um, somebody else that you know well, Donald McRae, a celebrated boxing writer, sports writer, um, somebody who you had a a large influence on his his very well known book, uh, Dark Trade. If you're watching this interview and you haven't read that book, then shame on you. Go and read it. Um, Don speaks in that book about. The night with Gerald McClellan and Nigel Bemby also talks about obviously Eubank and Michael Watson. I've asked this question of I think I spoke to Nissa Sowland, who was involved with Edward Goodnecht, who was unfortunately hurt by George Groves. When you're a promoter and you put on a show and somebody does unfortunately get hurt on the show, what's that like for you? I mean, you mentioned you saw him in intensive care. What's that like? What goes through your head as the promoter?
1: Well, you, you look and first of all, you look and look at look at him and you, and you think of his family, because the family are there. So imagine what they must be going through. you know the fighter's fighting for his life, or you know f- his life's not going to be the same. you know there are guys who've had, it, had injuries and come out of it. they've been okay, obviously they can 't box again. But you get guys who will go and box again. that kid from who it went and fought down in Plymouth mm-hmm. last year. he shouldn't have been fighting. people encourage him to get in the ring and you know you, you wonder about how that happens, but yourself you look at it you think. Well, you just look at it and you think to yourself, how, you know, how, this is not what it's supposed to be. But it it, it does happen. On rare occasions it happens to be. It does happen. It's a dangerous sport. That's why every boxer should be aware of the dangers when they step into the ring. And all we can do is, people who are involved in it, if we care about the boxers and, and care for the sport, is to try and keep keep improving as much as you can the precautions that you put in the checkups before fights that boxers are not cheating in making weight because that's a big problem that was a, certainly was a big problem in the 90s uh, with, with boxers going into saunas and you know taking weight off and that and that is a dangerous place and a dangerous thing for boxers to do um, any form of dehydration you know your, the brain sits in a fluid so if you're taking you can't make the weight then don't fight at that way go up a weight but you get guys who who, who 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 do things like that and that can contribute and I think that contributed as well to Gerald McClellan. I don't think he trained I know he didn't train as well as he should have done. So maybe and I know he was going up a weight, maybe he felt comfortable. I don't know, but I, I think that may have been a contributory factor into where on what where he where he um where he is today. Um but it's, a, it's, you know, it's, a, it's an awful feeling for anybody, not just the promoter, anybody involved in it. You look at it and it's a real terrible, terrible, um, a terrible place to be. Horrible place to be for the boxer. Dreadful place to be for everybody around me. His family. And you're there and you're watching this and you were involved in it. It's, it's, uh, and you do question it.
0: Do you ever question your future in the sport when something like that happens?
1: I have done, but I, I, I honestly do believe... You know, I like to believe that um, I've helped in certainly in British boxing in and in been instrumental. I think in in getting and improving the uh, the boxers a lot medically. I remember paying. I'm not sure the exact time, but back around that time, when the board introduced the MRI scans, I paid for, I paid for every single boxer in the country to have or, or who they sent for to pay for their MRI scans. Um, and no, no other promoter put any money in. No one, think, which was quite surprising. Did that, um, even with, with a dreadful situation with Michael Watson when he was fighting the boxing border to control, who then who were fighting him in a court case about the injuries he sustained in the fight against um, uh, Eubanks. Eubanks, Chris Eubanks. Uh, I'd never promoted him, but I got I got them together in a room. I said, "It's ridiculous what you're doing here." I think the board has spent about one and a quarter million pounds on legal fees, and God knows how much he'd spent. Why are you spending all this money? This is crazy. You know, you've got to sort this out. This man's in a wheelchair, and and you are you know, it's no good saying you knew the risk when you got in there. You also have to be there to you know to protect the boxer. And I don't, I, I didn't see I I just didn't see the sense of all this money being spent when. They could have sorted this out, and we eventually did sort it out. Um, I put I put some money in to help. Um, the, the, we run a, a show for him as well, uh, guaranteed underwrote that he would get at least two hundred thousand pounds back in those days, and we delivered for him. We you know we we got it got it there, and, and Michael, you know, and I never as I say never promoted, but I just felt that boxing had an obligation there, and it was crazy what what was going on, it was just horrible um and you know michael's sort of he's he's, he's a brave guy he's showed what a fighter he's i mean he's brought himself back i mean he's he's you know, when, you th- when you look at him sort of walking that marathon that tells you what he's made of and, he, and thankfully uh um you know he's he's financially he's got some comfort level there to to help him in in the, in the, in his difficult life that he's, he has at the moment. But. Uh, all you can do is, is help. A lot of people talk about it. A lot of people don't do nothing about it. You know, a lot of people, you know, I've said it before. You know, when a promoter's sitting in a sauna with a fighter the night before a title fight and then his son's tweeting out he can't get any more weight up. do you not understand, do you not realise what has happened in this sport because of things like that? And it's not even you saying the fighter's in the sauna. His dad's sitting in the sauna with him. You know, so I, uh, that is where you draw the line about you know wh- what do you want from this sport? You know, what is it about? You know, is it about kick back, keep looking at the bottom line, the cash, or is it about looking after the welfare of the person that you're involved with, the boxer you're involved with, and worried about, and also the welfare of the sport? And that's why I get you know people say, oh, I would say this, but I would say it because you know what? I've at least I've tried and done things to help try and help the sport. Um, and you know I've pulled fires I mean, recently we had Ryan Garner, not once, twice fainting. The you know they wanted him to fight. Mm. I know the board were not allowed it, but before he even got that, I so said he ain't getting in the ring. Forget about it. It's just not going to happen. How can that, How can you even think about it? I know why he fainted, because the lazy little sod never trained and he's gone and taken the weight off. And that's what what it's all about. You can't let someone get in the ring after that. You just cannot let that happen. It's bad enough. You can't let it happen when they're fainting. You, you know, everybody's there and seen that happen. How can you let that happen? Madness. But there are people who, let, who do that, and that's why this sport is a bastard sport sometimes. You know, there's no coordination between all the governing bodies working on this, collectively working together, sharing information. Because the only way you're going to stop things like this is sharing information. And now, what I started doing when I was a kid, what they called unlicensed boxing, wasn't licensed by the board. That's the norm now. That is the norm. You look at it, you've got these white-collar, blue-collar fights, all these guys doing it all the time. What's the medical supervision over that? What you, I mean, I, I have no idea, what, you know, what this is. It's just suddenly everything's boxing. KSI fighting... Um, the other kid, he fought his name, Logan, the first fight. That's a white-collar fight. I mean, the second one's a white-collar fight. They never had any amateur experience or anything. That's what they, they are what they are. Good luck to them earning money, and it's great. It's not knocking them. All I'm saying is don't look at that, that that is what you would call out-and-out professional boxing. These are guys that have no amateur experience and no professional experience either, just jumping in the ring, settling their differences. Good luck to them. I've got a problem with earning money, but that is not what... That, for me, is not what the sport I'm involved with, boxing. That is not boxing. That's two guys duking it out in the ring to see who's the, who's the keyboard king or who's the top banker or who's the top, I don't know, whatever. You know, two fellas having a fight. You know, it's like, let's get it on now with Piers Morgan <laughs> and, Alan Sugar. and Alan Sugar. Let's get that on, you know. that's all it. But it's all it is, isn't it? It's no different than that. And if they want to do it, Good luck to them, and they know that they know what the risk they're taking. But do not confuse that with what I think is our sport. Our sport's a bit more, you know, to say cynically, it's more purer than that, and that's what it is. I've got to take my hat off to them. I'm not knocking them. I have no no intent of doing that, but but do not confuse that with what we do.
0: Final question um, for today, anyway. I think this is this is something that's that could take several parts. Sorry, Frank, you might have to spend a little bit more time with me than than you'd like to. Um we're less than a week of 30 years since you were shot that night in 1989 um I don't think I've knowingly at least ever spoken to anybody who's been shot so why don't you tell me about kind of the 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 incident itself really
1: it hurts <laughs> and it makes you jump yeah listen it, it it's a funny thing, I mean, I, don't even th- I honestly do not, I don't even think about it. Hmm. I, I don't know if it's consciously I'll put it at the back of my mind because I might get angry, but I don't think about it. And at the end of the day, I didn't realise it's 30 years ago, my God, um, it, it, it was just a, it was a surreal experience, you know, it's a surreal experience. And it nearly, you know, you want to make comebacks, if there was a comeback, that was that, because that obviously put me right on the back foot, caused me a lot of problems financially, with London Arena, a business, we were just about to do a syndication with a group of banks for London Arena who were going to take 49% of the business for a lot of money which would have been brilliant but it all fell apart because I got shot and I'm like, what's going on here, that's that's what happened. So financially it was a problem, it was a problem for my family um, but I had to be strong and I had to get through it and do what, what I do which I discharged myself from hospital, I lost a lot of weight, a lot of weight, discharged my from hospital and got on with my business.
0: Now. It's interesting you would say that because the first thing you said was, you know, it affected my business, and then obviously it affected your family. What you didn't mention is the the physical effects they had on yourself. I mean, you you've kind of put the business and then the family and then yourself third. What was it like for you? I mean, you discharged yourself, I believe, after ten days in the hospital against doctors' orders. About,
1: about after ten days, yeah, I got I, I got I, I just well, I just discharged myself. I come out of the hospital and it was it was it was just a horrible horrible time. You know, it makes you. I thought about a lot of things at the time. Um, and it was uh, it was like a bit of a wake up call for me, irrespective of what happened. But it's a wake up call from how how maybe how my life was being led.
0: What were how, your, how I
1: was leading my life.
0: What were your memories of the actual incident?
1: I just remember a bang. I thought it was a car backfiring, and I looked looked around and I see somebody with a mask on standing there, and he was. I remember his, I remember his hand was shaking, and I heard a click. And nothing just a click and I thought it was a joke to start with but it wasn't then suddenly a bang and then bosh hit me there I thought it hit me here but it came out and then I can remember sort of get, it was too far away for me to grab hold of him mm. and I went around the other side of the car and my, my partner then was a, a he was a barrister a solicitor barrack became a barrister called John Bottres he uh he ran at him grabbed him and put him on the floor which was a very brave thing to do. I mean, you know, he was not like one of the guys from the streets or anything. He was a, a, a blue at, from Trinity College, Oxford. And I always remember he's I remember he you know, he, he, I remember he was shouting out, he's going, What the fuck are you doing? And it sounded quite strange. But anyway, on the floor and like, I could yeah, that was it.
0: And Then your next memory is just—is it was it waking up in hospital? Was no, it with no. the wife? I remember everything. Now, the amb- it's a funny thing of witnesses.
1: There was one witness there, late John, John Jonathan Rendell, who who's written a couple of books and uh, or had written had written a book. Uh, he, he was involved with um, Connie McMillan, and his police statement was that um, he see a couple of black guys, and he. Remembers me in this commo He remembers seeing these black guys hanging outside, and he see me being put into an ambulance and saying away. Well, there was no ambulance. They were on strike. The ambulance was on strike, and I was bundled into the back of a police van. And I remember him doing a three point turn, bumping up the curb, and I'm going. Pff! And, I, and I remember, and the, and the doctor, the border the control doctor, I remember him, he said, he, he said, you got a hanky? and I'm bleeding, and he said, just he hold the So I'm holding a hanky on my chest, banging around, driving to this. Called Brook Hospital, which was in a, ironically a, a, a road called Shooters Hill, <laughs> and I went up, and I went up in the hospital, and it was uh, it was you know cutting clothes off and all that sort of stuff, and that
0: was it. I didn't mean to laugh when you said Shooters Hill, but that was that, oh, that was well. quite. <laughs> um, what was that like for your family? I mean, at the time, I'd imagine that your boys were kind of were, were very young around I the time. Kiss. Yeah, I my mean, Hen- Henry, my wife was pregnant with him at the time, and she. Uh,
1: uh, the police went to the house and they told her that I was like 50-50 to make it through the night, and uh, she probably f- thought it was a Gladys Knight song. But anyway, <laughs> so at the end of the, day, at the end of the day, uh, she came down and, and I was, they brought me around the next day, and that was it.
0: Then obviously there was there was the trial which featured one of your ex-fighters, um, Terry yeah. Marsh. Um, what was that like? I mean, I'd imagine that must have been painful in a different way. But going through that sort of thing and the rigmarole of bringing your family into court for something like that must have been very stressful.
1: Well, my family didn't go. I mean, I, I, because I was the guy who got shot, so I, you know, I gave and I gave my evidence as I as I said. I said I do not know who did it. I couldn't see who did it, and that's with the evidence. So that was that. And he, I think he, I think eventually he was. Got off. I think it was a majority decision, whether it was. But that's that's what it was.
0: Okay. Well, I think we're probably about there for today, Frank. Right. Um, I've robbed enough of Netflix's content for for one day. You want st-
1: <laughs> no, the real stuff is going to be on that documentary and the book, which will be coming
0: out next year. Yeah, we we heard that once or twice today already, Frank. Well, I just thought I'd give it
1: a <laughs> mention. Soon as I as soon as I don't get a fee for this, I thought I'd get something <laughs> out of it.
0: You get my undying love and respect. Frank Warren, yeah, always a pleasure catching up with you. Um, I'm sure people will be hassling me for a third part of this, as they have for this part, so hopefully people who have been asking about this enjoy it um, as much as they did the first one. And if you've got anything that you'd like to know from Frank, pop it in the comments, and we'll see if we can ask him in part three. You, why don't you do that? You know, Do a Q&A. Frank Warren, always a pleasure. Cheers, mate. All the best.
1: You. That was great. <laughs>